Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. And what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about dead code. Dead code. And what what exactly is dead code? Is it just as simple as it sounds? I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really depends on what you have in mind already, but uh, yeah, the way I see dead, dead code is code that if you would to if you were to remove it, it would serve no purpose. You you wouldn't see any observable difference, like maybe performance improvements, but other than that, nothing is different. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's the way I see dead code. There's also the definition of Oxbow code, so O-X-B-O-W, which I, I think, if I understood, which if I understand it correctly, means uh, dead code that used to be used. It lived a long, healthy life. Yeah. So if you write a function and you never use it, then it's just dead code. But if you ah. if you change your code and then some function or some piece of code ends up not being used anymore, then it's called Oxbow code. OXBO. Interesting. Do you know what that term comes from? OXBO? Uh, OXBOW. Uh, but no, I have no clue. I think there's a like a, a bag brand that's called that oh. way, but I don't think it's related at all. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it, it seems like that that is a surprisingly uh, thoughtful definition uh, for something that seems so simple. But I guess it is there is a lot of depth to this topic. There's like like you say, there's code that once served a purpose and then becomes obsolete. There's sort of code that was prematurely written, anticipatory code that actually never came into use. Mm-hmm. And then there's like another dimension, which is um, you 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 talked about code that if removed would not change the behavior, and so that other dimension is. Uh, dead according to what perspective. So, for example, if some external system is doing some sort of metaprogramming, reflection, things like that, then something may be dead in the in a simpler sense. It might be code that is never executed, but it might change the behavior of some external system or some sort of tool that's using reflection. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's why reflection is such a <laughs> such a terrible thing, in my opinion. Mm. At least from the point of view of someone who doesn't use it, but it does make like dead code detection a lot harder. I mean, if it uses it in one way or another, then it's not dead code. It's just, right. It's it looks like like it's dead, but yes. it isn't. Totally. And that's the worst. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. That that is that's a static analysis tool author's nightmare. Right. Is a uh, code that appears to be dead but but isn't and i guess we've talked about this before the difference between code generation and more metaprogramming through reflection and tools like that and i guess that's one of the advantages is with code generation if you look at the generated code it it doesn't matter at the end of the day who wrote it as long as you can look at that code and analyze that code it behaves exactly the same as code that a regular user wrote yeah and also the difference with other techniques like metaprogramming or using macros is that it doesn't change your existing code. It only changes or it, it only adds more code, right? Mm-hmm. Right. W- which is a lot easier to, to understand. Like if you change uh, your, your code using a macro or using some source code transformation uh, to make it so that one function that looks like it isn't used is now used, then your editor, your static code analysis tool will have a lot of trouble figuring out that it is used. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So how is dead code different in the context of Elm versus other programming languages? You've, you've written about this before. I know you've, you've thought a lot about this. You've worked a lot in static analysis tools in the JavaScript ecosystem and in the Elm ecosystem. What's unique about dead code in Elm? Well, the first thing I would say is different compared to ESLint um, for JavaScript is that you can actually detect it. And it, in Elm, it's super easy to detect whether code is dead. In JavaScript, it's a lot harder. Like, for instance, if you declare a variable in JavaScript, you say const abc equals some value. And if you can't see uh, ABC being used everywhere, uh, anywhere, then it's likely that it's dead code. 
so you can remove the, the assignment to ABC. But you probably still can't safely, at least, remove the, the value that it was computed. So if it was ABC equals foobar function call, then you still need to get that to, to keep that foobar function call. You, you could remove it if you do some very in-depth analysis of whether this function actually did something. Like, is it pure? Is it impure? But that's actually very tricky to do or very costly and depends on what your ecosystem does, right? So if you do, if you have Babel um, transforming your code, then maybe uh, you'll remove something that will actually be used or used in a different way than expected. So th that's like the, the first huge difference between a language like JavaScript and like Elm is that for one, it's super easy to figure it out. And the other one is hard, almost impossible. Right. And, and we've talked about this before, like there could be a Babel-like tool in Elm. They're just, that's just not the culture. And yes, absolutely. But if we did that, it would break all of these assumptions and it would make your job writing static analysis tools a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, some people maybe already do it at the, at, on their work project or something, and I just don't know. But as long as I don't know that they're using something like that, I'm going to assume that no one does it. And if they are getting false positives because of my reports, using Elm Review and News, obviously, then they know that it's their fault that, or that it's their mm -hmm. responsibility to, mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't remove things that should be used or that are actually right. used. Right. The, the, the nice thing yeah. is with the Elm compiler is that when you will try to remove it, you'll get a compiler error anyway. Yes. Probably, yeah. depending on how their system works, but yeah. Yeah, the, I was just thinking that too. It's it, the, the worst case scenario is a lot different and the, the likely scenario is a lot different. Likely, you don't have to think about metaprogramming at all. But even if you did, the worst case scenario would be that you get a compiler error, not a sneaky bug in production. Yeah, but it also depends on what kind of um, transformations are done. Uh, like if someone tomorrow comes out with a uh, Babel-like uh, project for Elm and they don't have anything that would impact unused code or dead code detection, then it's not an issue, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So let's, let's talk about some of these, um, some of these rules. So in, in the package Elm Review Unused, uh, which we'll drop a link to, let's just kind of step through uh, what some of these rules do. So um, let me just list them off real quick. So the, so the rules in, the, in this package are no unused variables, no unused custom type constructors, custom type constructor arguments, exports, modules, dependencies, parameters, and patterns. So those yep. are the core building blocks. And they also sort of play off of each other, right? Because by removing one thing in one step, that allows another rule to kick in and say, well, now that that thing is not used, this other thing isn't used. Yeah, like every time I improve one of these rules or I write a new one, my hope is that I'm starting a Ruby Goldberg machine. So one rule activated, removing something, and that then triggers something else that removes more stuff, more stuff. And then hopefully at the end of it, I've got like a, a snowball effect. Remove a one tiny thing, and then you'll end up removing thousands of lines of code. That's what I'm hoping for, <laughs> at least every time. Yeah, the um, I feel like you know, no unused variables, exports. Th those are things that you can uh, that are pretty intuitive, and you can wrap your brain around. Um, I'm always like impressed when I when I see that it's able to detect that a custom type constructor is unused. Like, so mm -hmm. you want to talk about that a little bit? Like the, the way that you determine that is, is pretty, pretty clever and maybe not immediately obvious how you would do that. Yeah, so in Elm, you've got custom types and custom types uh, lists a bunch of constructors or variants. So if you have a type um, remote data, you can have a loading constructor, you can have a loaded constructor and an error constructor. Let's go with these three for now. And the nice thing about Elm is that every time you use one of these, it's done explicitly. So every, it's never anonymous. 
So if you want to use one of these, you will actually see somewhere saying loading or loaded or error. And because Elm has a, a and because Elm has an explicit way of referencing variables uh, and functions, you can always work out which type this refers to. Um, there can be like some confusion because there are two uh, modules that uh, define a loading state, a loading, loading constructor, but it's always explicit with the imports or it, um, not explicit, sorry, uh, unambiguous. So, and whenever it would actually be ambiguous, like it could be right. either one of those, that's a compiler error. Right, because of the shadowing changes yes. in Elm 19, right? Yes. Yeah, so if it's ambiguous, we would do something or we do nothing. It really doesn't matter because Elm Review assumes that the code uh, already compiles. And so whenever we find a type that matches this constructor, we just report it. Mm -hmm. And th there are some... Um, yeah, so if there's a, a variant that is never used, then then it can detect that. And there's a there's a special case with with comparisons, right? What's the what's the subtlety there? Yeah. So so yeah. B before we talk about comparisons, there are two two ways in which you can use a a variant. You can use it in as a value, like you assign it to something, you you store it in your model, something like that, and you pattern match on it. And the pattern match actually doesn't count as a use of it. So if you handle the case, but you never build one of those, you never use them, then that is actually a dead code block, a dead code branch. And you can remove both of those. You can remove the definition and you can remove the, the case off, at least right. that, that branch. Right. If you consume something, but you never create it, then it doesn't, all the places that you consume it don't matter because you can prove that it's never created. And this, of course, is different if it's an Elm package, then you're exposing something externally to your known code base in the Elm package. So you don't know if it's ever used, um, if you expose a custom type constructor. But if you, yeah, if so, it's so, not an Elm package, then you do know whether it's ever used. Yeah, in a package, anything that is exposed uh, publicly uh, as part of the packages API, uh, is considered to be used. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. That like makes sense. any functions in there. And so, yes, there's an edge case about uh, using these constructors in comparisons. It's like if you do A equals equals uh, loading, but that that's in a way just like pattern matching, right? That's just checking that A is of type loading. So you can consider these, or at least I do, uh, I consider these as non-users. That makes sense. Right, because even though you're technically creating one, it's only to do the same idea as pattern matching. That makes sense. And this rule also provides an automatic fix, uh, at least when the type is only used in that same file because Elm Review has only single file fixes. Uh, and in those cases, the comparison gets transformed to a false or true right. statement. And then Elm Review Simplify can clean that up. And then Elm Review Simplify can clean that up. Yeah. Right. So the, that's like this general pattern of these review rules piggybacking on each other and snowballing. Yes. Which feels so nice. <laughs> Although it's sometimes hard to know like which one should take care of what, but it works out usually. So, so, so how do you think about, I think that, you know, we tend to get attached to the code we write, you know, I'm sure you have mixed feelings when Elm Review is telling you that something is unused, right? You're celebrating Never. and... <laughs> <laughs> Just party. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're um, more enlightened than, than most of us then. But, um, you oh, know, it, <laughs> you, you, want to, um, you want to argue with it. You want to say, like, wait a minute. Like, I know that's not used, but this is like... I defined my type so nicely and I'm going to use it. <laughs> and this is like the, the platonic definition of this type. And sure, it's not used right now, but it should be defined this way. So like, how do you, how do you navigate that when you have, um, when you have a type that it's like, it's not used, but like, it feels like it should be defined that way. Have you had discussions like that from users who are? Yeah, definitely. 
So my answer is not always just remove it. That's my default um, action though, but it's not what I always go for. Sometimes I notice that a function or something is not used and I report it to the one who wrote the, the original code and they tell me either like, okay, yeah, this is Oxbow code, so you can remove it, um, or this is a bug. Like, oh, this actually should be used. Like, uh, if we don't do it, then uh, that's a bug. Like, for instance, having a, a function that checks whether you're admin or not, and you know there are sections where you should check that, uh, then, yeah, you probably have a bug lying around. So th that's actually a, a very nice feature of the whole unused package uh, of all the rules, is because one thing that you get out of it is that you get a lot of potential bugs reported to you that are not always reported in the other languages and uh, other tools. So that's, that's like my main, one of the main reasons why I do care about it so much is because it's actually a very good heuristic for bugs, for finding bugs. But yeah, it, it depends. It, it's not, the answer is not always to remove the code. It also depends on how much complexity that there is in the code and how much harm there is in, to keep, in keeping it and how much harm there is in removing it. So one example where I could see myself keeping it is if you have a bunch of colors, like you have a color palette somewhere, you define red, uh, red 100, red 200, red 300, according to some palette that you defined or that came from your um, designer. And a lot of these will be unused, which is normal, but does it make sense to remove those? Maybe. How much trouble will you get if you keep them? Probably nothing, right? But on the other hand, it's also very easy to, to add again. Probably if you know, if you have access to your um, style guide or design palette that comes from your designer. Where I would say I just always delete it is when you have features that are half-built, uh, but are not currently being developed. Because for me, it's a sign of premature not optimization, but premature Abstraction design. Or, yeah, 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 right. So, so you've, you're thinking ahead to, to build a feature, and you think you're going to build it this way, but it might turn out that it, that is not the right, the right way to go. Right. It's Yagni code. You're yeah. going to need it. Yeah. Exactly. So the, the way, if you want to keep it, then you can keep it, sure, but you're going to have to maintain that code and maybe to, in the end, remove it anyway. Uh, and maybe because you had all of this code before uh, beforehand, you will keep it, you will try to change it when you're developing the feature, once you're actually working on it. But if it was not the right design, then you're going to spend more time than if you wrote, wrote it from scratch, potentially. Like this, it's not a, a hard science, right? Yes. I, I really like that framing of it that 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 color example is a really good one like this is this represents like a meaningful concept in your domain that even if it's not being exercised it it is a correct definition that's meaningful and like and then versus like building features partially in advance essentially work in progress you know i think a lot about this sort of lean thinking concept of of work in progress and how that creates waste like in in lean there's this idea that work in progress leads to different types of waste like, you know, defects, extra maintainability, you know, so by, and it also just reduces your capacity to move quickly on the things you are building. So the idea would be to do small batches of work where you actually build things that are used, not building a bunch of par partially used things. Like if you're not if you're creating a lot of unused code in the way that you're building something, so as as you kind of pointed out, there's this oxbow when code becomes obsolete versus when you write something, when you write a lot of unused code as part of building a feature. And those are very different. And if you're building a lot of unused code as part of how you build features, you might want to reflect on how that's having hidden costs to, to the way you write code because essentially you're cutting yourself off from a feedback loop. You are, if, if it's unused code, that means it's not 
being exercised by an automated test. That means it's not being exercised by code that you're seeing in the browser when you run through how things are working. That means it's not being exercised by users who are giving valuable feedback on whether it's solving their problems. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, that's really important to, to try to minimize unused code. But as you say, the, there are times when, like, for example, if you, if you define an API and it has map 3, map 4, map 5, map 6, map 7, map 8, and because you like using that pattern in your code base, and map 7 is unused, that's probably fine, right? So that that's a, that's kind of belongs in a separate category, that it's not building features prematurely before they're exercised. It's defining an API. So it's it's kind of mm-hmm. like an internal package in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, those are a bit tricky to figure out. Like, is it better to remove it? How much risk is there in messing up rewriting map 7? Well, there's some some risk. But the other solution is, as, as you said, if you write automated tests, then it will be considered as used, at least in the current um, workings for LMU unused. So just write an, an automated test and you won't have to remove it. Right. Now, does that mean that can having automated tests around something that doesn't actually get used in production, can that can that prevent you from getting that snowball effect where a bunch of dead code is removed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could ignore tests in practice. The thing is it's going to have some some unexpected consequences or you'll get false positives. So basically, like if you have a function that you only use in tests and you remove it, then or you report it and then you remove it, maybe that's fine. But... There are also some values that you only use for tests, like explicitly for tests. Like if you want to test the in- implementation of a of a module, it's not the best thing, but in some cases you will need to. For instance, if you have um, values that you can only create through HTTP requests, for instance, or GraphQL requests, those you can't test if you don't have a way to write them or to create them. So you will probably add a function to create those values specifically for tests and then you have one way or another to to make sure that they don't appear in production code but those would be re- reported as unused as well in your test in, in your by arm review unused and that's a false positive because because you want to keep those so th- that's like the the only thing that prevents me from working on this like i don't know what i should do with this that makes sense yeah you might you might have like a helper to create an admin user. And maybe you even also have an Elm review rule that gives you an error if you use that helper outside of tests, right? But so, yeah, what do you, what do you call it? Do you call it unused or not? It's, um, it's, not, it's not an easy one, but it, but it does make me wonder, would it at least be interesting to try running, like to delete my tests folder and run Elm review unused and just see what happens. Uh, and then, of course, very quickly go restore my test folder <laughs> so I don't accidentally <laughs> permanently remove it. But, you know, yeah. that could be interesting. Uh, absolutely. I th- think that could be interesting. And if some people try it out and report back to me how useful that would be, probably quite a bit, actually, then maybe I could I could write um, some configuration settings for no unused exports, which I think would be the appropriate rule in this case. Like it could have a configuration setting to say, these should be reported, these should not be reported or something like that. Or you should ignore tests, you should not ignore tests. Right, yeah, very interesting. And that said, I mean, you could also argue that it's a code smell to depend on internal values from tests. Yes, it is, it is. But in some cases, like, yeah, you need to, I think. Right. In some rare you have cases. to use your judgment. Yeah, you have to use your judgment for that. But if you're reaching for that solution too often, mm-hmm. then it it might mean you you need to rethink the way you're you're designing your your APIs, your public interfaces for the for that code. So we talked about um, kind of preemptive code, anticipatory code versus. Um, Oxbow code, code that becomes obsolete after having been used. 
But what about, and we talked about the cost of introducing unused code as part of the process, but, but what about when to remove unused code? Like how long should you go before removing unused code? Should, should it be you make a pull request and you clean it up as part of the pull request? Should it be before you commit you remove unused code? Should it be even within making a single tiny commit, you have Elm review dash dash watch dash dash fix all running in the background and cleaning up unused code? Like how, how far do you take that? Yeah, uh, the longest I would wait is for the, um, when doing the pull request. Like yeah. Definitely at the level of pull request. I know that some companies that have very large code bases uh, do a somewhat regular cleanup, but that's probably just because Elm review is too slow for them. In all, in all the other cases, I would at least make it uh, require that all unused code is removed in the CI. Every pull request needs to have removed everything. Right, right, right. The the CI should fail because that Elm review rule will have have errors. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then do it at every commit or do it within a single commit. I, I think it depends on how you want to do your commits. Like if you're an adept uh, like us of tiny commits, then you can actually choose to do it per commit or per change or not. Uh, de- depends on how you do your, your commits. I probably write my functions before I use them. And I think that you probably uh, write some dummy code, replace that by a function. So you extract that to a function and, and then write the contents of the function. So in your case, you will you would never have dead code. Yeah. I Or very little. I will say I actually practice those things. Like um, I, I think a really powerful technique is doing code katas to really practice this sort of um, yagni, you ain't going to need it mindset where, so like if, you know, if you think about test-driven development, there's this idea of do the simplest thing to get a test green, meaning, uh, and, and it's always, there's this concept of programming by intention where you, um, you know, you, you start with an intention and then you write the code to fulfill that. So you like write a test it's failing. It's saying it should do this. So it's used before it even exists. So using it comes, of course, there's no unused code because it always starts by using it. It's it's a pull versus push. So instead of pushing out code that you think you'll need, it's this philosophy of consuming code before it exists and then only creating it in response to that. So you're always responding to a need just you know, on every level, you're trying to respond to user needs by building things that you actually validate users want, and you're trying to respond to the needs of your code and your architecture and and your infrastructure by building things as they're needed. So that's something you can practice and get better at. And I have found that approach to be extremely powerful. Yeah. If you do it my way, uh, then you you write a function. Well, I think it's probably the more common way. You write a function, and when you're done, uh, you use it. That is a different type of dead code that we haven't talked about it, uh, which is code that you wrote and that you forgot to use, mm-hmm. which is actually pretty <laughs> common, I think. <laughs> At least with the Elm review, you, you you get a reminder that, hey, you forgot to use this, which you would also get after... Uh, a few minutes of debugging, like, why is my feature not working? I, d- I wrote the function perfectly. And like, yeah, you forgot to use it. Yeah, I, I still need to, uh, to train and to, to write things the way that you do, I think. Because uh, I think it works better. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, if you do it in my lazy way, then do it whenever you feel like it. Like when you want to clean up, if you do it, uh, if you write comments your way, then I don't know. Like, uh, I think it would actually be very interesting to do an exercise where you would write commits in a in very, very tiny steps as you like to do. And you try to fight against Elm Review Unused and Elm yeah. Review Simplify. That would be fun. And, and see how you can circumvent it or whether you could win. <laughs> right, basically. right. That would be fun. I, I 
suspect that the one thing that would really um, get me would be writing types, defining types before they're used, because I do often model out types before I use them. But I think um, I think it's I think it's worth sort of um, comparing. Like you can you can write unused code, or you can write a to do list, right? And um, often I I think maybe people don't realize how important a part of that process that is. But for me, I am constantly writing out new things on my to-do list because I know I'll forget them as as they come up. So that helps whenever I think of something, instead of writing some code to do that thing, I say, oh, make sure I solve this problem. Make sure I don't forget about this thing. Sometimes I put uh, to-dos in code. And I mean, sometimes I have, if I'm going through and I'm trying to fix a bug or change a feature or something like that, sometimes I will comment out code and put to-dos surrounding that code because I know I need to consider a case or make sure that I actually do want to remove something. But but having lots of commented code, Elm Review Unused, at least right now, will, will not detect any uh, commented code. But there is also a cost to commented code. And I think that's also... Um, there's a cognitive cost to that because, you know, it's an in-flight piece of code that you have to look at every time you look at that code and wonder, was there some action I was supposed to take here? And it's not clear what the action is from that commented code. But I will I will often uh, go through and comment out code and then delete it before I make a, a tiny commit. I actually don't see a lot of uh, commented code in Elm, which makes mm. me very happy. Mm. I know that in ESLint, some people I worked with in, in the open source community uh, wrote a rule to report, to report commented out code. In my opinion, that's probably that probably has too fa- too many false positives, mm. especially with Elm code, because like yeah, a regular sentence right, right. can be uh, can be valid Elm code. There aren't as many curly braces and parentheses and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah j- just a sentence without a, a, the period at the end. If you just have spaces, then that's just one function call. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think there will be too many false positives, and it's not a problem that I see often, um, at least in in the project that I work with. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm realizing now this idea of building out partially complete code versus like maintaining a to do list. It's actually very similar to like a co- the concept in in the getting things done productivity methodology. The, there's this idea of inbox zero, uh, which you mm-hmm. may have heard of. And uh, I'm guessing you, you keep your inbox to zero, zero so, unread messages. Uh, yeah, zero unarchived messages. So you yeah you clear out your inbox, and the way you do that here's the subtlety. You so you have your let's say email inbox. It could apply to different kinds of inboxes. And you sit down to process your inbox, and all you are trying to do is process everything, not necessarily complete everything associated with it. So there's this idea of the two-minute rule. If you can do something in two minutes or less, you take care of it. So if you can respond to an email and be done with it two minutes or less, do it. That's how you process the email. If something takes longer than two minutes, then what you do is you take that as an item on your to-do list, and then it goes out of your inbox and into your to-do list for larger things to track. So I think there's like a similar dynamic with code where if you have a lot of in-flight code that is partially complete, it's it. I think it's a little bit overwhelming to have all these things that are in varying states of completion. But if you just process, it's like getting to inbox zero, like finish the things you're working on, capture the things that you don't want to forget. And if you trust yourself to have a system where you know you're going to capture the things you want to be sure not to forget, then you don't have to write partially working code to to make sure you you capture it while you're thinking of it. You just put it in your mm-hmm. to-do list. Right, yeah. I mean, sometimes you, you just want to write a function because you finally figured out how to write it, for instance. Yes, But that's yes. slightly different, I think. I mean, right. you, you, could, you could put it in your to-do as well. Y- yes, no, you're right. And that, I'm glad you bring that up because... So often, like in in the sort of you know code craft community, uh, uh, people will often make the distinction between like writing production code and spiking. And when you're doing a, 
a spike, a research spike, you're just experimenting. And the deliverable, the thing you're trying to achieve from that spike is trying to figure, like, figure something out as quickly as possible. Like, is, is this viable? Is this performant? Or whatever your goal is to understand that research task. But then it, the idea is that it can be sort of throwaway code. And so that's, yeah. that is a different mode of writing code. Mm-hmm. So you'd probably put it in your to-do somewhere at some point. Yeah. And you can, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you're writing unused code and you're just sort of, I mean, to me, that's like a different mode of, of coding than building out production code that I sort of have a clear path that I know how to build. It's more like, I don't, I don't know how I would build this. I'm just going to throw a bunch of code out there and experiment. And, and the idea is that it's sort of like you could just throw, throw the code away. So Elm code, dead code in Elm is interesting, right? Because it doesn't affect your bundle size. So what, why does it matter? Yeah. So Elm has dead code elimination. So it removes all the code that is unused. I think it was Mario Rogic who like, like to call it the live code inclusion. So it's not that you remove all the dead code, it's that you start from your main and you include all the functions and types, or actually only the functions and values that it references, and you do that over and over again until you've collected all the references. So that, yeah, so you you pull out whatever comes from main instead of removing everything from your code. And that works well in Elm. So it will work extremely well in the sense that you will have if you have a lot of dead code you will uh, remove almost all of it but there are some cases where elm actually doesn't remove dead code and that is for instance for references that are uh, defined in let variables so if you define a let variable uh, with underscore so a unused thing say underscore equal something well that something will be included in the bundle size in the bundle so it will impact the, the bundle size if it's assigned to something else that underscore like param or abc, then even if that is unused, it will also be included. And there are a bunch of these things where, well, that's the primary one, uh, but Elm doesn't do, let's say, a good enough job to remove everything. Right. Same with unused record fields. If a record field is unused, it's still going to pull in the associated code. Yeah. And Elm Review Unused doesn't target those yet. We can talk about that in a a moment if you want. So yeah, there's the issue that Elm doesn't remove everything. But also like the biggest uh, reason for removing dead code, even though you've got dead code elimination, live code inclusion, is for maintenance. So if you have a a type with four four variants and you only use three of those, but you have a panel match for the value in a hundred places, then you you got one hundred branches that will actually be included in your co- in source code that, that will be shipped and that you will have to maintain. So if you yeah right yeah you have to pull that into your brain every time you look at the code right that's yeah that's huge. So one thing that I I would say probably the number one Elm review unused rule that I fight against would be no unused parameters because like. Well, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes as a framework author, sometimes it's difficult because I'm passing in parameters and I'm like, these things are available. And then Elm Review unused is like, yeah, but they're not being used. I'm like, yeah, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's not a there, there's not an easy answer there. But as a regular user, um, I also find that sometimes I, you know, or, or sometimes I'll pattern match a constructor and I'll destructure a, a, a variant and I I have these three values and I want to know what their names are when I'm looking at it, but I'm not using one of them. And Elm Review Unused is like, no, but you're not using that. You should call it underscore, which I'm I'm like, yes, I agree, but also I want to know what, what its name I want to know that it's not used clearly in the code. But I also want to know what its name is. Yes, I know. <laughs> Uh, I feel the same about, about this somewhat. So the the issue is that uh, you've got code. Sometimes you have functions that you need to define and that need to conform to a certain um, API, like list dot uh, dig dot map, for instance, takes the key 
mm-hmm. uh, and the value. Right. And of, you right. Know, often you only care about one of those, but you cannot remove uh, one of the arguments. Like you have to declare two, even if you put underscore. And Elm review on news is not smart enough to know, hey, you should. <clears throat> An Elm review on news is not smart enough to know when that is the case or whether it's a custom function with a f- where one of the arguments is actually just unused and you could remove it. So the only thing that this rule aims to do is to let you know that an argument is unused so that you can potentially remove it from the function definition as well. So if you have a function that takes two arguments and you're only using one of them, then it will tell you, hey, your first argument is never used either remove it, which would be amazing, or rename it to underscore. So that it's like an active choice of, hey, uh, this is unused, I know, but I, I, I don't have a choice. Like this is the interface that I'm working with. I know that some languages uh, have a different way of handling unused variables uh, where you can name your variables uh, with a starting underscore and that means that this is unused. Like you won't be able to yeah. use it, yes. but at least you can name it, which I think is really nice. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I Yeah, Elixir has that feature and I've, I've really enjoyed using that where you get to give it a name, your tooling without doing any fancy static analysis knows right away that it's an unused thing because it's, it's actually syntactically, as you say, unusable. It's the same as throwing a value away with underscore, but it, but it can be given a name. But but even but even in that case, like if the compiler or the static analysis tool notices that something is unused, you will have the option of either prepending it with underscore or removing it. And once you've prepended underscore, well, the tool won't be able to tell you uh, that it's unused again. So if you're not working against um, an interface later on, then you will have an unused argument. So it's like an active choice that it will be somewhat definitive, definitive, mm-hmm. which is a yeah. shame. Yeah. But yeah. Now, if you, you, if you do a sort of underscore throwaway on a, um, on a parameter in an Elm function, that doesn't get dead code eliminated or anything like that, right? The Elm compiler would still treat that as used. So that's that's a good thing to be aware of. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's not obvious what to do in cases like that. I I have been kind of mulling over in my head recently, like whether records can be helpful in cases like this, or whether that's a bad idea. But that's something I've been thinking about. I, I think you would mostly be moving the problem away, mm. or yeah, just moving it further. I mean, sometimes records are sometimes you want a group of named things. I mean, overusing positional values can be not so great. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I think I do that too much in my Elm code. I think that I do too many positional variant arguments, and I think I do too many positional function arguments probably. I mean, to a certain extent, it it is what, what the syntax makes natural and, you know, uh, when you define a variant in Elm, it gives you a constructor function that takes each positional value as an argument. Whereas if you define a type alias for a record in Elm, it gives you a function where each positional value is, you know, is yeah. each of those named fields. Whereas like something like Ruby, they have these key value hashes sort of built into the way you do method method invocations because you can uh, you can just pass in key value pairs in a very natural way that's built into the syntax. And so it encourages naming arguments in that way. Yeah, I don't think that would work as well in Elm because mm. because of currying. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because in, in Ruby, you would have to, when you call the function, you will have all of the arguments already. And in Elm, you have partial application. So you may only have a portion of the arguments. That's a that's a very good point. And also you you can't, extend an elm record or change any of its types so you can't really modify the shape of a record and that so yeah you're right you know unless it's really a distinct 
record that has like a clear purpose that's of related data. You probably shouldn't just throw unrelated parameters into a record in Elm. Yeah. But I think it's also an issue because if you don't have ID support for uh, making this easy, like it, it takes a lot of effort to change positional arguments to a record or the other way around because you need to change all the locations. Um, in my case, I, I usually do an entire commit to, to do just that and then add more arguments. Um, but if you had like uh, ID support for that kind of transformation, you would probably end up with a lot more records. Like you would do this change more often. Right. Same with parameters. Removing unused parameters, if there was IDE support for that or for adding a new parameter and drilling that down, like that is probably one of the most tedious parts of, of writing Elm code for, for me right now is like if I need to pass some data through deeply, then it's tedious. So unused records. So you mentioned, I know you've been working on this rule for a while. So what's the what's the big challenge for, for writing this rule? Yeah, so I'm not actively working on it or I'm mm. working on it on and off because it's hard. So I think that the main issue is that records in Elm are anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I think I said unused records to clarify. We're talking about unused record fields. Yes. Yeah, because an unused record is just a value and that can be removed easily. That's already the case. So yeah, the records in Elm are anonymous. So if you if you go back to the uh, custom types, um, when you have remote data equals loading loaded error, if you see loading, you really you know you can be you know for sure that this is the loading from that type, um, that this is error from that type because you you can work it out. The imports are explicit enough and unambiguous enough. For records, you don't have that. So if you, for instance, have your type alias model equals rec records with some fields, then you can try and figure out which fields are used and unused, but it's going to be a bit tricky. You will need type inference, which I don't have in Elm review so far. The issue, for instance, if you have a, a list of items, an item is a record and you pass that list of items to a list on map function. Well, now you need to know what the type is of the function that you pass to list on map to know what values are used for, uh, for the items. Uh, and depending on that, you will need to, you, you'll be able to figure out what is used, what is unused. So that is one issue that, that we, uh, we need type inference, but there's also the issue that you define a record without a type annotation and you don't know whether it will be used as an item or as a model later on. So th that makes things a bit tricky. Like if I remove, uh, if I report this, uh, this field from this type, maybe not including uh, one of the, it's a bit hard to explain. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, basically you're using a, you're seeing an expression somewhere and it uses uh, a field uh, from the record, but you don't know whether this record is corresponds to model or item. It might be a different uh, record or a different type, and it's a bit tricky to to assign those because it's anonymous. Like it, there's no explicit way of linking the type and the record that you built in the right. value realm of Elm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's doable, but uh, you need type inference and and potentially also like flow, understanding how a value flows from one function right. to another. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, so it would be cool though. It would be cool. <laughs> but so, okay. So there's another rule that we haven't mentioned. We mentioned oh, all these. Maybe, maybe I'll just uh, work, say something in between. So I don't have an Elm review uh, rule for for this, but I'm working a, a tiny tool to to report unused fields using M Optimize Level Two. You have a list of transformers where you analyze the JavaScript code, and I made a very simple transformer that basically looks at all the the field uses uh, in the JavaScript code and all the field declarations. 
So if a field is never used, but you find it in some places, well, you can remove it because Elm is very explicit. Like you don't, you don't have any dynamic uh, property access. So if in the whole bundle of your code, uh, you never use the field ABC, then you can remove all declarations of field ABC. So I wrote a small transformer that just removes all, all that code and also reports it back to you. So I've used that uh, recently to to find out a few unused fields in my code. Hmm. And that worked pretty well. Oh, that's cool. Uh, you got a, a few false positives, like code that is in dependencies that, that you have no control over. But it's also pretty nice that to have this in Elm Optimize Level 2 if I one day make a pull request and get it merged. Uh, because then it will remove even more code that than what you have control over. Yeah, the snowball gets a little bit bigger. Yeah, but but yeah, but uh, then again, you need to build the snowball mechanism because some field doesn't get uh, declared, so you don't have the assignments. But now the uh, value that was assigned, uh, if it was using a function that is now never used anymore. You also need to remove that. You need to do the live code inclusion or dead code elimination again. Yes, and so yes, on and so right. on. And that uh, M optimized level two doesn't have that yet, or it doesn't have it enabled at least. Mm-hmm. So uh, a bit more work. Mm, <laughs> but I see. It would be Interesting. Cool. That would be very cool. Yeah, there's so many so many good rules. All you know, even without the unused record fields, you know, the unused dependencies is incredible. Martin Stewart even has his bot that. We'll yes. make pull requests on on Elm packages that have un- unused dependencies, which is awesome. Yeah, if you get such a pull request, please accept it. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't, then it means that people who depend on your package probably depend on dependencies that they don't need to depend on. And since you can't have um, two major versions of a of a single package, like that can actually block people from using your package with something else. So, and also just it's cleaner, it's more lightweight. It's yeah. nice. Accept it, please. <laughs> it's it's so nice that I mean, imagine compare like imagine if there was a way to say like no unused JavaScript package. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there is an ESLint rule. For uh, that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I wrote one for ESLint. Oh, cool. It's called uh, no extraneous dependencies. No, is it as is it as robust? Like uh, it's Similar? very robust, okay. but it, it <laughs> might uh, change your code. <laughs> mm. No, yep. yeah, be- because importing a dependency means importing right. a module, and importing a module means it can have side Global effects. Side effects, yep. Uh, yep. So yeah, it can have false positives in, in that way. Right, right. Whereas in Elm, nope. And import doesn't do anything. Yeah. That is so nice. I know, it's amazing. So there's one last um, related thing that we haven't talked about. Maybe there are other related Elm Review packages, I'm not sure. But but Elm Review Simplify kind of rolls the snowball a little bit more, right? So, and and actually, I think I I underuse Elm Review Simplify. So, I mean, the more you can roll that snowball, the more you can roll the snowball, right? So that's the thing <laughs> yeah. with snowball effect is it's like, I don't know, grows nonlinearly or something. So so, so tell us about this rule. What does it do? So yeah, uh, there's a bunch of ways that you can write pieces of Elm code. And some are more complex than than others. And sometimes in unnecessary ways. So if you do something like A plus zero, then that's the same thing as A. So I actually don't know if Elm Review Simplified handles that one. Probably. Let me just check. Yeah, so, so it handles that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of transformations that you can expect from this package. Just simplifying the code to more simple code, right? Right. So why would someone have A plus zero in their code? Oxbow code. So I always, like, these are just seem very stupid or simple in some cases uh, but I always, always try to view it as um, this can be the result of another rules uh, impact so for instance let's say you have an if condition where in uh, one of the conditions you have you return one 
in one of the branches you return one and the other one you return zero. And because you removed a constructor, custom type constructor, for instance, that gets replaced, the condition re gets replaced to false. So you got if false, then one else zero. Well, element view simplify will simplify that to remove the if condition and just keep the last branch. So now you're left with n plus zero, which you can again be simplified to just n. Right. So it's essentially another dead code removal tool, right? Yeah, that works in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And there are also some trade-offs with this one uh, because you don't want I don't want to impact how the um, developers write their code too much. Like, for instance, if you have a list.map uh, plus one uh, and then an array with one, two, three, mm -hmm. then I could replace that by right. two, three, four. Right. But potentially that makes the code more harder to read. Like, especially if you do something like uh, if you have large strings and you compute them, then I could kind of pre-compute them. But then the code would be super long and super hard to, to maintain. Right. And it might make the intent of the code less clear or yeah yeah but it's more like uh, this package is more like if the value can already be simplified or computed and there's not a not a lot of um, gain in keeping the original code then i simplify it for instance if you do string dot length of a string literal like abc you know it's three i don't see when you would actually need to to, to keep it the original way Except if ABC was somewhere else, but then you can replace it by a string by a variable, in which mm. case it won't simplify anything. That's an interesting one because, like, if you have minutes per hour equals sixty, and seconds per minute equals sixty, and hours per day equals twenty-four, and then you have seconds in a day equals those three things multiplied together, then you could simplify that. But you know, maybe that. It was done that way intentionally to to not have magic numbers too, right? Like magic numbers is a code smell people try to avoid, and so there's a trade-off there. Exactly, and and in this case, I don't do it. I don't simplify it mm -hmm. because otherwise it would make the code harder to read, uh, right. and some some intent would be lost. But if you multiply multiply by zero, then yeah, I remove it. Yeah, I simplify it by zero. Like whatever. Your intent was next to it. If you if you multiply it by zero, it's zero. There's no point in, in keeping the other things. That's very cool. Yeah, we'll we'll link to all these. Um, the um, the Elm package documentation for Elm Review Simplify lists examples of everything it does, and it's it's pretty cool. I I need to I need to go run run this through my projects and and see if it gets rid of much. We'll see. It'd be interesting to see what it what it finds. Uh, I'm always disappointed. It doesn't usually find that much. <laughs> and then there's also the question of, uh, you know, using this as a as a refactoring aid, and uh, mm -hmm. that's interesting as well. But but I know that these uh, some of these simplifications are like the opposite of what you do when you write your code. Right. Bit that's by bit, right. right? It, ex exactly. Yes. Right, because because review fixes are unidirectional and refactorings are bidirectional. Because sometimes um, sometimes you want to inline code, sometimes you want to extract code, and they they both have their purpose. Uh, if we go back to unused rules, uh, real quick, um, I just want to give a shout out, not to someone, but to a thing, which is called shadowing or the absence of shadowing. So one of the reasons why Elm is a, such a beautiful target for Elm Review Unused is it makes things so much easier is because you have no shadowing. Like you can't redeclare a variable in, a, in the same scope and that removes a lot of ambigu ambiguity and therefore uh, complex logic in the rule uh, to detect unused code. So I'm super happy about that. So I, I, know that, I know that a lot of people don't like it because it's annoying. But I think like even just without the unused rules, there are some very good arguments that uh, Evan makes in his um, error message uh, in favor of of this feature. Yeah, it that blew my mind when you when you described how how it makes code easier to reason about because you can't you ca you now can't delete a definition 
a let binding or something and then have it change the meaning of your code. It could like not compile, but it can't change the meaning of your code. And similarly, Elm Review doesn't have to do flow analysis now because it can rely on that. That's pretty pretty powerful. The the only thing that I would actually like is for Elm to do more of it. Right. For because, basics and all the automatically exposed values. Yeah. So so like even just uh, explicit imports. Uh, if you uh, import a text from HTML, for instance, uh, that can actually be shadowed. Oh, yep. Yeah. So anything that you import from basics or from any other imports, explicitly or implicitly, can be shadowed. And therefore, there's a, quite a bit of complex logic in in the Elm review to handle that. Uh, so I'd like to get rid of that, <laughs> if possible, for, for the same reasons as shadowing. But I do understand that then some imports can be uh, annoying to do. But qualified imports for the win, Is anyway. Are there any Elm review rules to help with preventing shadowing in those few cases where it's possible? No. Because that seems like that could be a good yeah. candidate for a review rule. Yeah, good idea. Yep. Yeah, so if you weren't aware of this, if you define a if you import a value and you define another value with the same type, so like probably if you define text, it's going to be a string, but the text from HTML is going to be list of attributes, list of children, returns HTML. So that's not an issue. But if you define something that has the same type as something you import, then removing one of them or removing your local one can have behavioral changes. Right. So you need to be aware of that, even though it's ah. super rare. Like, I don't think it's ever happened to me ever, actually. Interesting. But it, it can happen, you know? So eh. hmm. the, the aliasing multiple modules under the same name is a little bit like messes with your head too, right? Because I'm, like, what if they have functions or types of the same name? Oh, uh, that's not an issue because that's a compiler error. That's a compiler error? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that feature always <laughs> seemed really surprising to me that it exists. I guess, yeah, I, I know some people like to say, you know, import list.extra as list or something so they can. Yeah, I, I, I don't like it, but I'm also, yeah. I also have the point of view from someone who had to write code against that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And there was a time where Aaron reviewed didn't report those so because mm -hmm. it didn't know about like other files so oh well i'm importing uh stuff from these two modules that are alias to the same thing i don't know what i import from which one right so i'll just keep them both here and then like uh, a few versions later then I, I was able to successfully remove those which felt so good yeah. <laughs> well satisfaction in removing things there's elm review unused gets a lot of love people people love using it um if you haven't tried using it there's a command at the at the bottom of the readme which we'll link to uh for how to try it out uh without installing anything or setting anything up you just run it and you can feel guilty about all the unused code you have <laughs> or celebrate or celebrate. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's something yeah. that I often see now in, in tweets or on uh, the Elm Slack is people just pasting uh, a screenshot of how much code they just do it. And yeah. we, we, I think we all kind of know that this is because of Elm Review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you definitely, also, yeah, also somewhat you, uh, the Elm compiler, but right, right. when it's massive deletions, yeah, it's Elm Review. It, it is. It is a good feeling. It is a good feeling to do some spring cleaning. And what what better time than now to get rid of some dead code? Yeah. But because, yeah, if you have Elm review unused uh, enabled for every, um, if you have all the rules enabled, in addition to having having the guarantee that your code works, that it compiles, you also get the guarantee that whenever you see a value, it is used. Whenever you have, a, you have a function, you know that it is used. It is one less question that you have to wonder about. So for instance, whenever I see um, a pull request coming in uh, and someone defines a function and I haven't seen it used anywhere yet, I stop wondering like, is this used? I know that it is used because otherwise there will be a CI error. So yeah. that, that's a nice feeling, I think. It is, yeah. 
yeah, it is, that is a powerful, it's a, it's a constraint about your code that you can rely on to, to make it easier to reason about what's going on. Well, I think we've, uh, I think we've covered dead code pretty well. Is there any thing we should leave listeners with to, to go explore more or uh, read up on this more? Well, I've got a few articles on my blog talking about this in more detail. The more interesting one, I think, is um, safe dead code removal in a pure functional language, uh, which explains all the steps of how do we actually know that something is unused and how far can we go. Yeah, that, that's where I would send people towards. Yeah, there's a, there's another nice one, which is you thought you had no dead code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also worth a read. All right. Well, um, well, happy dead code removal. And Jeroen, until next time. Until next time. 